everybody sort of lives in glass houses in this industry, and not everybody's hands are clean. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, powered by GE Aerospace. I'm JJ Kirtler. And I'm Vago Maradian. Joining us today after a stint in Paris is one of the world's top air power reporters, Steve Trimble, the defense editor for Aviation Week and Space Technology. And later in the program, my conversation with Frank Saudo, the new CEO of Safran Electronics and Defense. Uh, that's been investing in a range of systems and weapons that can operate in fully GPS-denied environments. And we'll have this week's headlines in air power. And it's all powered by GE. GE Aerospace is developing the next generation of fighter aircraft engines to help the U.S. maintain its air power advantage. The XA-100 is tested and ready for warfighters to go further, go faster, and fight harder. Learn more at geaerospace.com slash XA-100. And Bell sponsors our daily podcast, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage and Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. What's in the news of the week on all wings considered, JJ? Well, Vago, submarines beware. The U.S. has approved the sale of 16 P-8 Poseidon Maritime Patrol aircraft to Canada. They have an expanding challenge there with the sea lanes opening up around the Arctic Circle and through the Northwest Passage. A European consortium led by Airbus is in the very early phases of developing a new tactical airlifter to complement the A400 Atlas. Lockheed Aeroboss Greg Ulmer told us last week he has a lot of faith in the future of the C-130 despite a paltry order book, but here is Airbus bringing yet another contender under development to replace the Hercules. This past Tuesday, June 27th, was the 100th anniversary of aerial refueling in the United States. Did you get your cards out on time? There were nationwide flyovers in celebration, although I'm not sure any used authentic de Havilland DH-4s like the original event. It's probably not lost on anyone who follows this podcast that among the casualties in the Wagner Group's abortive thunder run on Moscow over the weekend, they shot down an Aleutian 22 command and control aircraft with full crew, as well as six helicopters. Reportedly, 39 crew lost total. Operating in domestic airspace, they may not have been taking full precautions. But it turns out that governments aren't the only ones with serious air defense capability. And to everyone who says that sanctions don't have effect, the Associated Press reports that Russia is likely to cancel the Moscow air show this year because they just can't get planes, parts, and attendees into the country. Vago, I hope you didn't buy non-refundable tickets. I certainly did not buy non-refundable tickets. And given how generous I am of my criticism of, of Russia, it's one of the places I really don't want to go until all of this blows over. I am uh, going to just throw uh, one thing in there to commend to the audience to uh, check out the Mitchell Institute briefing that they gave to reporters on uh, Wednesday that was with Doug Berkey and the team talking about uh, you know the age of uh, America's combat air forces and the imperative to invest in more airplanes that are essential to air power and that the price tag for that is between 10 and $20 billion a year, but it's something that we really need to invest in and start investing in now, given that, you know, air supremacy and air superiority are, you know, absolutely critical to future warfighting. So I commend people to, you know, check out the report because I think that it makes a very compelling case that it all rests on air power. And if you don't have air power, you really are, are very, very vulnerable. 
And here's a headline we didn't discuss because word just broke while we were talking with Steve Trimble. Boeing has flown the first of its T-7 Red Hawk trainers with the United States Air Force. They had two developmental birds on hand. This is the first one that belongs to the Air Force. And that program now moves into engineering and manufacturing development. So finally, some motion forward on the T-7 from Boeing. So I should welcome to the show uh, Steve Trimble uh, now to join us for a conversation that normally JJ and I have, but I can't think of anybody better suited to join this team to discuss the headlines. And I want to start off, Steve, with a hearty congratulations. Uh, Aviation Week's Check 6 podcast won Best Digital uh, at the Aerospace Media Awards at the Aero Club uh, in Paris. And uh, warm congratulations to the whole AvWeek team and Joe Anselmo, uh, your guys, a terrific editor and the whole team for, uh, for winning that award. Well done. Thank you. And I also uh, congratulate our uh, producer, Guy Furniau, who's really stepped up our game. Thanks, uh, in fact, to uh, the work you guys have done on this podcast and, and other podcasts that you guys produce. Thanks very much, Steve. But I mean, I, I think the great thing about this business is we all make each other better. And I mean that genuinely. So of those headlines, what is it that kind of jumped out at you that's worthy of commentary, aside from the fact the the unfortunate loss of those uh, Russian crew members uh, at the hands of, of their own mercenaries, I guess? Oh, yeah, well, actually, so many thoughts on all those things. But yeah, particularly that and, and the absence of Max this year. I used to go to that every two years. And you know, it's just sad to think that it's hard to imagine when somebody from the West, especially people like us, can go back into something like that feeling safe and that we're not going to get arrested. But beyond that, the P8 news was really interesting because, you know, that's just half of the story that's going on right now in Canada. They've got to replace those CP140s uh, that are their version of the P3. But Bombardier is really making a push to force Canada, or not force them, but to persuade them anyway, uh, to to, uh, not go with P-8 and launch development of uh, a maritime patrol variant and anti-submarine warfare variant of the Global 6500, which is one of their products. Uh, But it doesn't exist yet in that role or for that mission. And uh, so that's, that's a really interesting drama that's sort of playing out even after the Canadian government already said that the P-8 is the only aircraft currently in production, they say that actually meets all the requirements. So there's that. And the other thing I'd point out, uh, just I did see on LinkedIn last night, the U.S. Army fired a ground-launched Tomahawk for the first time. And that is actually special significance for me because I, after Paris, I went to southern Belgium, where I am now, to go see where I used to live because my dad was stationed here at Florian Air Base where we had ground launch cruise missiles. Uh, they were called the Griffin, but they were a variant of the Tomahawk with nuclear warheads. So I went to go see that base and they've got a, a museum with that launcher and a model of that missile uh, set up. And then I came back from that and I saw that the, the army had uh, just fired the, the new version of that, uh, but conventional, not nuclear. And they, they, they're planning to feel that later this year. So it was kind of this bizarre sort of, you know, repeat of history. 
I, mean, I, I would uh, point out, right? I mean, uh, where we are now, that which is old is new again, uh, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, everybody uh, is making uh, that investment and, and trying to step up. And I can also say one of our number, the great Doug Barry, who's now at the International Institute for Strategic Studies, is another person who's going to be gravely disappointed because he would always get you know tremendous insights from going to Max. JJ, anything uh, you want to add about uh, how the week unfolded in some of the headlines? Well, the only thing I would add, and again, it's on that P8 point, is that this is an interesting reversal for the Canadians who you will remember took Boeing out of a bunch of competitions after Boeing decided to raise issues with Bombardier on an earlier contract and in international trade forums. Canada backed away from all business with Boeing. So this is the beginning, perhaps, of a rapprochement. Look, I mean, I also think that Canadians are extremely pragmatic, right? So when it comes to combat aviation capability, as much as folks talk about whether or not they'd be entertaining, you know, uh, Eurofighters or Gripens, at the end of the day, they tend to stick with American combat aircraft as they have for a bit. And uh, they're very happy with the Auroras, uh, which is what they call them. The other Um, piece of that, of course, is that they're patrolling the North Atlantic, the North Pacific in the same areas as the U.S. is operating. And they will, of course, have full commonality now and interoperability with the U.S. forces in that area, which they wouldn't necessarily with another platform. Exactly. And then there's also a lot of non-developmental costs, right, Steve? I mean, you know, effectively, you would then have to get the mission system. You would have to get the permission of the mission systems maker. In this case, right, Boeing is the full mission system maker and integrator using a lot of the technology they pioneered for the Nimrod replacement for the United Kingdom, or, or rather for the Nimrod program, like the MR4A had that Boeing mission system in it, which eventually then developed, uh, if I recall correctly, into the P-8 system. Yeah, although, I mean, Canada does, does have its own experience. I mean, the CP-140 had a different mission system than the U.S. Navy's uh, P-3s, but it was more borrowed from like the S-3 Viking. Bombardier has teamed up with General Dynamics Canada, which has a lot of extensive experience in anti-submarine warfare technologies. It, it's a long shot bid for them to do this, it seems to me. But there's still, there might be a route or a path for them to maybe split the order with some number of P8s for the near term and then do a parallel development uh, with Global 6500. Of course, Canadians don't spend that much on defense, so it's, you have to wonder where the money would come from for that. So it's still kind of a, a long shot uh, attempt there, but Bombardier is really trying to make a push to become a defense prime contractor. And they need this deal for that to happen because they need they need a domestic order to get them really launched in that direction. And this is their only shot. Let me uh, expand this uh, briefly. First, JJ, thanks very much. I mean, one of the most incredible enabling capabilities for air power is the advent of aerial uh, refueling. And obviously the United States uh, at the time, the Army Air Corps played a seminal role in sort of testing out the, the capability and, and working to develop it. But Steve, I want to get your sense on sort of the longevity of, of the C-130 Hercules, right? I mean, the uh, first assault on it was obviously the KC-390 by Embraer, where customers have been buying it, right? A twin-engine jet uh, rather than a four-engine turboprop, a very modern airplane. It has a toilet, as the, <laughs> as the engineers yeah. have pointed out, but also a really lovely modern glass cockpit and flight deck. It's a comfortable airplane to fly on, uh, not taking yeah. nothing away from the tactical abilities of the C-130. 
Then we had the A400M come out, which was a bigger class airplane. And now Airbus is sort of considering something smaller at a time when the U.S. Air Force seems to be looking at maybe potentially some other options. Again, I mean, a cruising speed of the 390 is faster, for example, than a, than a Herc. How do, how do you sense this market sort of evolving in tactical lift? And what do you see as, as sort of the future of the U.S. Air Force's lift as it looks past the C-17 and maybe even the C-5M as to what its future lift requirements are? Well, that's, those are some big questions. Um, so the big issue with trying to replace the C-130 is that it's almost like Cessna trying to compete with the uh, Cessna 172 or try, you know, new build production competing with that huge backlog. Uh, there's just so many C-130s out there. There's this huge support network out there. The spare parts, the operator, the training, all of that is just so built in and so firm uh, and established, it's really hard to flip customers or flip operators to something new that doesn't have that sort of extensive logistical and training type uh, support to it and just awareness of what, what its capabilities are. So that's, that's a really hard thing. Uh, KC390 is, is certainly the best near-term attempt to deal with that. And of course, L3 Harris, somewhat surprisingly, teamed up with Embraer last September to offer that aircraft to the U.S. Air Force as uh, one option, but a, a, a new tanker for the Pacific. And they, they say it's something that they can get into remote airstrips and uh, austere landing fields and, and things like that. Of course, C-130 can do that too, but they say KC-390 is a bit faster. But I, I'm, but I think that's also one of those long shot deals. I'm not sure where that's going to go. The Air Force is looking at something beyond, I wouldn't say C-130 right now, but beyond 767 anyway, uh, or KC-46 for their next generation tanker that could also become an airlifter. And that's the blended wing body. I, I think there's, there's several different options they're really looking at there, but uh, there's a DIU contract that's out for grabs right now. And I think it's going to be selected probably within the next few weeks. Uh, and we know Jet Zero, this new startup company with a lot of pretty heavy intellectual firepower is proposing this, uh, this blended wing body first as a tanker to win this X-plane contract. They build an aircraft and fly it by 2026. It's supposed to be 767 size. So I mean, it's be a big X-plane. And then use that as, as, as the foundation of a program that they could use to go after the middle of the market commercial airline strategy. So if you go back to the KC-135, 707 days, that was the same idea. And both you know, the commercial market gets to leverage DOD investment, DOD gets to leverage commercial investment uh, for pricing and unit pricing over time. So that, that helps too. Uh, I mean, the problem is blending wing body is not proven in that format. It brings a lot of advantage, especially military side with that kind of volume and that kind of package. But there are, you know, just known issues when you take away that circular pressure vessel. <laughs> the reason why all airplanes are circles, I mean, there, there's a good reason for that. It's the easiest and most efficient way to carry those uh, those loads, the structural loads and, and the weight, as well as to pressurize the air and keep it pressurized. You know, you have to do some other things that erode the, f the fuel efficiency, which makes it less interesting to airlines typically in the past. It's a really interesting design. It's going to be really interesting to see, especially fly, if they win that DIU contract, but uh, they may not be the only team bidding for that. Well, there were two KC-390s on the ground at Paris. So let's talk about what we just saw last week, Steve. There was a lot to see at Paris. Some of it was new. 
Some of it we could have seen at the same show probably the last time they held it four years ago. What stood out to you about both what flew and what gets attached to what flies? The biggest things that happened at the show were not the things that flew, but it was what happened on the ground. Uh, the air and missile defense uh, announcements by the European governments, uh, I think, were, were significant, especially when it came to hypersonic defense. You know, some some big movements. We, there. we should point out the dueling announcements, right? I mean, there was what Sky Shield, which uh, Germany is doing, and then what Macron announced, which was sort of a separate thing, right? Sky Shield, which is all of these global systems coming together for a European air and missile defense. And then what Macron was proposing, which is a European solution to air and missile defense. Right, right. And that played out uh, on the first day of the show. Macron held a, a conference at the uh, museum on where the show was, and um, you know, which we weren't really allowed to go to, but they did make some announcements out of that. But then there were also you know, announcements on hypersonic defense. So the Spanish def uh, Defense Consortium had already started this high-def concept and MBDA launched at the show the Aquila for this uh, high dis, uh, high, I think it's high dis squared. So now you have two competing efforts to do a hypersonic interceptor as part of this overall program called Twister, uh, which also would include the satellite part and the command and control. So, I mean, the, the, all that was happening, plus the Israelis come in with uh, uh, Skysonic, uh, Raphael's version of a hypersonic interceptor, except you went over to Israeli aerospace industries and they said, no, they already uh, have one of those. It's called Arrow 4 and it's in development right now for hypersonic defense as well as other ballistic missile attacks. Although, you know, we still haven't seen exactly how they're going to do that. Raphael also showed off uh, a new air-to-air -air missile, an active radar guided uh, air-to-air missile that would, they said would have a, more range than the IDARBY ER that was on their exhibit stand. That was, that was really interesting because it's their first new missile body besides the Python and the Derby family in 50 or 60 years. They were showing it off to say they've started development, but in order to complete a five-year development program, they're looking for government sponsors from other countries to help them push it across the certification thing, as they did with South Africa back in the 80s with the Derby missile, of course. Right. So, yeah, I mean, there, there was so much to get to at the show, actually. And then there was all this drama over SCAF and Belgium coming in and what some of the um, uh, well, countries like France and Dassault thought about that and uh, other things involving the F-35. You know, I, I want to get to the, that next generation capability, right? Uh, we, we did break a little bit of news, right? We uh, last oh, yeah. week, our, our very own uh, Dr. Rocketron Epstein, you know, uh, said that there were three uh, demonstrators and JJ uh, found that it's been down selected uh, to two. And certainly this is the highest profile uh, program, right? We're moving, we think, to down select next year. The Air Force is not making comment on any of this. The contractors aren't commenting on any of this, uh, you know, with good reason. It's top secret effort, uh, obviously. Uh, even though some of this we sort of knew, right, that there would be demonstrators they want to try before they buy. And against this context, obviously, you have the Tempest team that's working things and then the French SCAF team, although, you know, the biggest news there was the Belgians joined, uh, mm -hmm. I, I, I think, as an observer. From your standpoint, where, where are we on NGAD? Because one of the other things that we picked up from folks was, look, it's, you know, it's, a, it's going to be a terrific airplane, but it's also going to be a terrifically expensive airplane. Secretary Kendall has been honest about that and said, you know, the numbers are going to be around 200. We heard Greg Ulmer tell us it's going to be closer to F-22 numbers. And then I had another friend at another company that's involved 
uh, you know, tell us that he he thinks it it might actually be closer to 150, if not less. You know, given how much the unit price is going to be. From your standpoint, where are we on this the program? Where where are we going? Well, congratulations on the scoop, by the way. That was really interesting to get that confirmed. And and just the background on that. 2015 Aerospace Innovation Initiative launched by Frank Kendall from OSD that was going to fund multiple prototypes, at least two demonstrators for a next generation aircraft. And so, you know, I, I guess I, I, you could sort of surmise that you'd have uh, the three companies that were competing as primes, which we knew about because they got contracts to integrate the next generation adaptive engine into a future fighter. Uh, those were Northrop Grumman, Boeing, and Lockheed Martin. So you have three private contractors, two of which haven't done a supersonic fighter, a new supersonic fighter design in quite some time, right? And certainly nothing beyond fourth generation. That's obviously Boeing and Northrop Grumman. Although, of course, Northrop participates with F-35 on center fuselage. But, you know, you need to get them to, up to speed with the latest in, you know, advanced aero and manufacturing and then Lockheed as well, either self-funded or through a uh, government contract, they do a demonstrator too. And then you get to what I'm guessing is some kind of fly-off, like we saw with X, uh, YF-22 and YF-23 and X-32 and X-35, uh, but just 30 years later. Uh, or 25 years later in the case of the F-35. Uh, and some of us are old enough to remember YF-17 and YF-16. Ah, yes, right. Yes, all the yes. Show off. Um, <laughs> So, but I mean, you know, so the RFP, they announced a month or two ago that the RFP had been released. Uh, that suggests to me that that fly-off is either ended or is in the process of wrapping up around now, uh, I would expect. They're getting all the data from that. That's informing what's going into those uh, final proposals from two companies, as, as you guys have proposed. We don't know which ones they are. And keep in mind, just for the U.S. Air Force one, there's still a Navy one that's still out there. And we're wondering what that is. And it may be slightly different, at least on the airframe side. It might be a common engine between the two, uh, maybe other common avionics emission systems, but the airframe could be substantially different. Uh, and that's going on in parallel as well, but maybe further behind the Air Force, possibly. Yeah, in terms of numbers and cost, yeah. So why is it going to cost so much? You know, there's, there's a lot of proposals out there to completely change the cost curve, to go to, you know, different types of manufacturing and different types of design processes. And, you know, that was Will Roper's campaign when he was still in the Air Force. But yet we're still get back to this idea that if you're going to have Mach 2 speed, which I think this thing will probably have, it, and it's going to have all these really advanced systems on it to make it relevant and survivable in a, in a combat, in a modern combat as well as be designed for a Pacific requirement, which the F-35 is not. It's really sort of designed for that European theater type range requirement, just because of the headspace of where people were in the 1990s right. uh, versus today. Uh, you know, you're going to need a lot more fuel and you're going to need to be a much bigger aircraft and aircraft cost is driven by weight. Uh, so that gives you, that leads you to a much more expensive aircraft overall. And then trying to make that aircraft do exactly what it needs to do, it gets, gets pretty expensive. And you still buy airplanes by the pound, ultimately, still, right? Right, right. And like I said, they're, they're, they want to come up with ways, and AFRL has been working on ways to come up you know, to break that cost curve where it's not $4,000 per pound for a fighter, get it down to 2000 or $1,500. But practically, it's, it's, it's hard to pull off. And I'm not sure Air, Air Combat Command believes that it can be done quite like that. 
you know, so that's that's where we are with that. And it's hard to see that breaking in the time frame that we're talking about for NGAD. So the other thing I was, I was thinking about with uh, the sixth generation fighter is the competition for the sixth generation fighter could be the F-35, right? And that was something that came out in this bizarre exchange between Pratt Whitney, Jeff Shockey, who's the basically the top lobbyist for Raytheon Technologies, or RTX, the parent company of Pratt Whitney, uh, who during the show released a statement sort of accusing Lockheed, specifically Greg Ulmer, uh, the executive vice, vice president for aeronautics, of subverting uh, what the Air Force wants to do with the sixth generation fighter in order to preserve uh, F-35 production, or extend it at least uh, a bit longer. Which, I mean, it was just kind of a bizarre thing to hear from the engine uh, manufacturer uh, for the F-35, uh, saying that about the airframe manufacturer for the F-35. And it was because Greg Ulmer came out in support of an AETP solution for the F-35 as what the F-35 really needs beyond Block 4. And that, that opens up a whole can of worms, really, about you know what, what's going on. And certainly, Pratt Windy has a, some self-interest in this in this um, debate over whether to replace or re-engine the F-35 as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but just to hear that kind of play out in, in such public and dramatic fashion during the Paris Air Show, I thought was really uh, interesting. I think also sort of uh, explains or suggests how sensitive things are right now in these debates, whether they're in the Hill or in the Pentagon or within industry about where the money is going and how you mm-hmm. spend it between F-35, re-engineering the F-35 and bringing in a new generation of, of fighters. Well, and Greg Ulmer was very forceful about that. In our discussion with him, apparently he said very similar things to a lot of reporters. But just going back, you've been covering all of these issues and this whole industry for more than a quarter century. Do you remember anything like this before with the internal <laughs> disputes between a, a prime and a subcontractor? It's, it's very rare. It's very rare. Something like this is, is, is pretty rare. But the, the closest thing I remember at the 2008 Farnborough Air Show, I got an interview with C.R. Davis, the lieutenant general who was then the head of the F-35 right. program office. And he, I mean, I, I, I wasn't expecting this. He just tore into Boeing uh, saying that they were spreading, I think he said spreading lies and half-truths about the F-35 program. And he, he had some really inflammatory things to say and uh, ridiculed uh, the F-18. And uh, it was all kind of a surprise to me because Boeing hadn't said anything bad about the F-35 to me, but uh, he was suggesting that they were sort of spreading this around to other potential buyers to other air forces, governments, uh, people in Congress, and that sort of thing. So I remember the poor PR guy for Lockheed uh, stopped me at the show, and he's like, why did he say that? We had this whole communication plan for the show, and now we just had to rip it up because this has nothing to do with what we were going to talk about. (laughs) Well, I I remember that, by the way, and at the time, without any disrespect to our uh, mutual Boeing friends, Boeing was briefing we're as good for a lot cheaper. We're a 4.5 generation airplane. And it was very reminiscent of Boeing's briefings on the 747 freighter that could have replaced the C-17 under the non-developmental no. airlift program. You know what I mean? I mean, so there was, it was very reminiscent of, 
it's exactly the same, but not wow. really, but close enough. And it was like, it's not a healthy oh. airplane, you know, and, and the, at the time, the unit price was high. There were all challenges on technology. I think what was sort of uh, rubbing Lockheed's rhubarb here a little bit was given the, the engine has been a challenge for the program, right? I mean, it missed the Farnborough Air Show where its international debut was going to happen. Oh, yeah, 2014. And and stand downs and, and the like. And it's like, hey, we need to get to a next generation of engine agnostically, right? Pratt is competing with that against GE, you know, and, yeah. and again, Secretary Kendall has said, hey, you know, the one budget item I wish I could have had a, you know, do over on is that one. And so I think that there was a little bit of sort of an interesting turnabout where it's like, hey, we're the prime, we're, we're the ones who know the kind of power requirements and cooling and everything else we're going to have, uh, ultimately. So yeah, it, it was certainly yeah. an interesting Thing. And that's usually it. I mean, usually contractors don't accuse other contractors of misbehavior just because everybody sort of lives in glass houses in this industry and not everybody's hands are clean, you know, historically for everything. So that's why it's really rare to see that happen. And sometimes uh, it's very rare to see it escalate. And of course, Lockheed did not escalate. They just sort of reiterated that what Ulmer said was that he favors the ATP's uh, option right. for F-35. And they reminded us that Pratt Whitney is a contender. You know, if ATP goes forward, you know, that uh, a Pratt Whitney engine is a contender for that. So it's not he wasn't specifying Pratt Whitney or GE, although, you know, people might think GE might have an advantage there simply because Pratt Whitney <laughs> doesn't want that to happen so much. Indeed. Steve Trimble, Defense Editor of Aviation Week. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope we can do this again. Yeah, thanks. I love it. Steve, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm very thankful you took time out of your well-earned holiday to talk to us. Have a great vacation and look forward to seeing you back in Washington soon. And hey, if you like the Air Power podcast, don't miss our other weekly podcasts. Cabas Ships, hosted by Chris Cabas and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, the downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our new technology report, where we dive deep into the ones and zeros of cyber, networks, chips, and more. It's hosted by Vago Maradian. And now for a conversation we had at Le Bourget last week, I met with Frank Saudo, the new chief executive of Safran Electronics and Defense, about his growth plans, including in the U.S. market, where some of the technologies and capabilities the company has been investing in, like systems and weapons that can operate in fully GPS-denied environments, may prove particularly attractive. Here's our conversation. Frank, thanks very much uh, for joining us and congratulations, uh, three months on the job. Ukraine is looming large in everybody's strategic planning. As a company that produces military systems across the communications range, um, weapons, munitions, GPS-denied technology, which you guys have been investing in, as we're seeing in Ukraine, the Russians are doing an extraordinary job jamming, and there are even some autonomous systems that are actually failing. From your standpoint, as you look at the lessons from the war, how are those lessons shaping your strategic investment and strategic planning going forward? Well, thank you for having me, uh, Vago. Out of uh, the Ukraine war, uh, uh, I take three key elements. One is uh, uh, clearly drones. And you know, it's uh, uh, an arena in which we are present with the patroller. Uh, so unmanned drone, surveillance drone, soon to come with unarmed capabilities. Second element clearly is GNSS denied 
technologies. And that's an arena where we are very much uh, present, combining our inertial navigation systems with the mastering of time. And combining both enables to uh, eradicate all uh, jamming, spoofing, and to be really resilient position, navigation, and timing. And last element clearly is ammunition. You know we are uh, very much present uh, through our searching uh, capability, big infrared, GNSS, or laser uh, search for missiles, one of which is the hammer, which uh, is on board the Rafale. So that's three elements I take out, Vago. Um, and it's interesting that you mentioned the uh, investment there are a lot of guys on the market, and I'm not trying to make this an advertisement, but your system is truly unique. You guys have won uh, some business in the United States because of that unique capability, because there are guys who say, well, we're autonomous or we uh, can operate in GPS denied, but actually they don't have the inertial systems on it. What differentiates what you guys do from what others are on the market that gives you a special edge? Well, uh, two differentiators. Let me start by uh, saying we worked uh, with a lot of armed forces, uh, including, of course, in uh, the USA, because we have indeed technologies that are game changers. I see two of them. One is the HRG, Hemispheric Resonating Gyroscope, uh, which enables uh, immense uh, precision on the one hand and strong capacity. And this we fusion with uh, uh, timing, atomic clocks. Uh, you know that we recently bought a company called Aurolia. And then we accommodate our clients, for example, in the SSA. Of course, we work locally through our SSA or proxy companies simply to be close to the end client and do what we, uh, what our DNA is about, a listening ear to understand uh, the operational and env environmental constraints and then deliver operational superiority. Um, let me take you uh, to the question of weapons. There is increasing discussion of what, are, what truly modular weapons would be like. The U.S. Air Force uh, Chief C.Q. Brown has talked about the importance of that, and so has Secretary Kendall. Talk to us about the hammer approach and how you can actually take the missile body change seekers, change propulsion motors, wings, to really make a truly modular weapon system. Hammer is clearly is a, a modular ammunition. And the idea is uh, we start uh, with a standard ammunition, a 250 kilograms or 1,000 kilogram ammunition, and then add a search kit on the one hand and a propulsion kit on the other enabling uh, really to guide uh, the ammunition where it uh, should be. Our solution is modular, hence, uh, from an operational standpoint, enables to have common, uh, for example, inventories for armed forces using classical standard uh, 250 and 1,000 kilogram ammunition, and uh, on the one hand, a very competitive Ammunition, And that's really what we stand for. I come back to it, uh, a listening ear to truly understand the needs of our client and then deliver super operational superiority. Uh, and I, I'm going to correct myself. It's a gen engine. It's not a rocket motor that you have on the back of it to give you about 70 miles of range on those uh, munitions. One of the biggest issues now is scaling production. If I went back decades ago, you guys were much more volume. Uh, everybody was looking at volume in that post-Cold War period. Everybody went to very boutique, smaller quantities. 
supply chain is a big challenge for everybody. How are you guys managing this? Because in France, there's going to be a new program law that's 413 billion, assuming it passes through the National Assembly uh, for six years, which is a dramatic increase, I think, from 289. And in the United States, there's a huge drive for munitions and to increase the depth of magazines. How are you guys doing this? How are you working with your allies and partners? Because what you have is actually attractive across Europe as well as in the United States. Yeah, well, first thing, we are an international uh, company. Safran Electronics and Defense is an international uh, company addressing the global market. We are present in 15 countries. In each of these countries, we bring the Safran DNA. And Safran is about state-of-the-art and game-changer technologies on the one hand, but it's also about rigorous industrialization. Remember that uh, Safran, the commercial aerospace side, did a ramp up unheard in the history of humanity with the CFM engine and the LEAP engine recently. And really that's this match we bring, solid rigorous on industrialization and game-changing technologies at the crossroads of both, a true capability to ramp up, let me uh, give you an example on the LMTM uh, application with the US government. We've sold over 5,000 uh, handheld optronic devices. This is the type of quantities. Yes, we are able to ramp up and uh, deliver the best of the best to our customers. Let me take you to the question of your priorities. You've been on the job uh, three months. What are your priorities and the direction you want to try to take the business? Because your predecessor left a very good foundation. Where do you want to take it next as you look forward, say, five, ten years? Clearly, develop the business internationally. Uh, the growth rate of our company has been significant. A good job has been done, be it organic growth or inorganic growth. We are going to continue this path, relying on very solid foundations, capacity to ramp up, seed technologies and technological roadmaps, capacity to invest over the cycle and be there in 10 years, 20 years, while increasing our presence globally, including in the United States. I was going to go there. You have a uh, great team. Peter Langell, obviously, is the president of Safran uh, USA. He's been on the job for about 15 years and has done a tremendous job on the commercial side of the house as well as defense. Uh, our mutual friend Joe Bogosian did a terrific job uh, at Optics One, taking a company that was operating at a loss and really turning it into an engine for growth in the United States. Uh, you've promoted him out of that job now. What's the growth strategy in the United States as you look forward, say, five and ten years? Because it is the biggest market on the planet. Well, definitely it is the biggest uh, uh, market in the planet. And uh, with a lot of humility, we believe we have some elements of operational superiority to bring to the table. How do we do it? First of all, people. We have immensely talented teams working on the USA soil. Second thing accommodate the requirements of the clients. We have SSA companies, proxy companies, whatever it needs, it takes to work with the US DOD, we simply do it. And last element is contribute all the seed technologies that we have in our portfolio, atomic clocks, uh, mastering timing, inertial navigation, HRG I was uh, mentioning earlier, and optronics. All this we simply put on the table, 
Make it available for the US Armed Forces. And trust me, Vargo, it's an immense pride of ours to work for the US government. And I hope the successes passed are, not, are only just a beginning. Exactly. Let me let me ask you one uh, question. Uh, one is sort of a, a buy American question. You know, every, everybody is worried about protectionism. Uh, when France talks about sovereignty, that's seen as protectionism by the United States. When we talk and our president talks about buy American, it's seen as protectionism on our side. How do you expect to navigate this period to make sure, because from the customer's standpoint, they want the best capability they can get their hands on. How are you guys going to navigate this to make sure, um, right? I mean, I guess Joe did it because his business was seen as an American business, even though it had a French parent and was operating in the United States as an American business. But what do you think are some of the keys for people to remember for success? Well, I would say two elements here. The first one, of course, Europe and the USA are great allies. So I am confident that between allies, to have uh, interoperable standards, there will continue to be, I would say, winds of uh, cooperation crossing uh, the Atlantic, first element. And second element, yes, we are in a particular period of time where localization is of the essence. I believe, indeed, as basis for growth in a multi-local uh, model in which we have immensely talented people in the USA, in Europe, among others, and uh, we accommodate uh, the requirements locally, be it cyber requirements in the USA, proxy, SSA, whatever. That's, I would say, an environment we are totally at ease working in, and we will continue to do so. Let me ask you one last question. It's about technological investment. Um, U.S. companies don't spend as much because they have a customer that spends uh, a lot of money uh, to help develop some of these technologies. You're a company that takes 20% and invests it directly to develop these technologies on your own. From your standpoint, what are the most, um, uh, most important enabling technologies you guys are investing in? There are people who talk about AI. You guys are doing some very interesting things with it. You mentioned cyber. You guys are a cyber leader. As you look at the technological areas, what are the focus areas you guys are investing in? Well, so one element clearly around is around uh, GNSS D9 PNT, Position Navigation and Timing. That's an area where we keep investing. And you know, Safran is a company investing across the cycle. We do not cut investment. We keep investing because we know it is out of our technological roadmaps. We will bring about operational superiority. That's one element. Optronics definitely is another. Sensor uh, technologies, uh, infrared, uh, visible, uh, of course, fusioned uh, between each other and enhanced out of artificial intelligence. And another arena, key, is the brain of it all, electronics, uh, where we invest both in industrial means to be competitive and sustainable, and to be able to deliver ruggedized electronics, critical electronics. One last question. Our mutual friend, uh, Pierre Chow, I ran into him on the floor coming over here, and I said I was going to uh, talk to you. You were former head of the company's helicopter engines, which also play a very important role in sort of being the incubator for some sustainable technologies you're working across the company. 
but, you know, and the president obviously talked about the importance of sustainable uh, and green aviation, but there are some people who say, look, this is kind of a buzzword and it's a little bit hollow. How do folks need to think about what sustainable propulsion, what sustainable aviation looks like over the long term? At Safran, we are people with values and clearly playing a key role and being committed to decarbonization is part of what we believe in. Now, where we will it come from? Really three areas. One is keep optimizing gas turbines. Okay, There are uh, 20% or so to be gained out of the optimization of gas turbine. Second element is uh, a hybrid electric because uh, uh, technologies like uh, the EcoMode where you switch off one engine in cruise mode to reduce uh, fuel consumption is uh, another element, for example, for helicopter engines. And last element, we strongly at Safran believe in sustainable aviation fuel. They have a capacity of decarbonization of up to 80%. Today, all Safran engines are certified to accommodate 50% SAF. We want to go up to 100%. So decarbonization is not theory, it's not the future, it's now. And we hire today talented young professionals that will be making a difference in terms of decarbonization today at Safran. Frank, thanks very much. Best of luck and look forward to uh, having you back on the program in a little while for an update. Thanks for having me, uh, Vago. Merci beaucoup. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> thanks for listening to the Air Power podcast and be sure to tell your friends. A special thanks to GE Aerospace for their generous support. We'll be back next week.